The news cycle might have moved on, but the refugee crisis continues in Europe. We recently sent our second mission team to go serve in a camp on the island of Lesvos. Today, you'll hear some amazing stories from two of the team members. It's episode 14 of the Mission Life Podcast. Let's get started. He says, why would you do that? What, what would you come to serve us? He says, I'm a Muslim. He says, we would never do that. And I say, well, I serve a God of love who gave everything for me. And all I can do is give the little I have to serve someone else. Welcome to the Mission Life Podcast. My name is Jeff. Thank you for listening. The goal of this podcast is to simply tell stories of people putting their faith into action and how that might encourage others to do the same. I have the privilege of serving Dunwoody Baptist as the missions pastor, overseeing our community and global outreach. So most of the people I interview on this podcast are either people we work with or people that we send. Today, you'll hear from two people who recently went on a mission trip to Greece to serve refugees on the island of Lesbos. This is our second mission team this year to go to Greece. We work with Conscience International, a Christian humanitarian and development organization, and have a couple from our church actually serving on the island. If you check out episode 10 of this podcast, you'll hear from Jeremy and Mariana Holloman, who are living on the island and working in the camp where this team served. When this crisis first broke out about a year ago, all sorts of emotions bubbled up. Fear, uncertainty, compassion. People wondered why there were so many men among the refugees. Some wanted to keep them out. Some wanted to welcome them all in. Whatever your opinion, it can all change when you actually go and see for yourself. That's what these two have done. So let's listen in on what they have to say. Well, thanks for uh, joining me today and, and sharing about your experience in Greece. Gloria, let's start with you. Um, just kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are. Okay, well, I'm Gloria. Um, I'm the proud mom of a 23-year-old miracle son. I grew up in a Christian home. Um, both parents very involved in church. Dad was a deacon and Sunday school teacher and in the choir. Mom was a GA teacher. I'm the oldest of three girls. Always been involved in church, but came to Dunwoody um, two years ago. This coming January will be two years, and um, loved every minute of, of it. Loved the mission's involvement here. Angelo, tell us about yourself. First of all, thank you, Jeff, for having me over. I appreciate you and Dunwoody Baptist and the team of people who've been at Greece. Uh, I've had the privilege to be in vocational ministry now for just short of 20 years. My wife and I started an urban ministry uh, nearly at, when we began the ministry, and that has flourished. It's planted half a dozen churches, uh, discipled hundreds of people. Uh, our passion is the urban, the poor, and the oppressed. Uh, I was approached a couple of years ago by Conscience International, uh, by Jim Jennings, who is a personal friend and a mentor, to see if we could work together in those urban areas of Europe, uh, Turkey, and Greece during the crisis, and uh, I've been with Conscience uh, for two years now. So. Um I just want to toss it out there. What did you guys do in the camp? When people hear refugee camp, all sorts of images might come to mind. 
But uh, Gloria, what did they what, what did they have you do specifically? Well, there were lots of jobs in the camp, and I did two or three of them. The first couple of days there, I worked as the uh, guard at the Afghanistan family compound, and. Um, I loved it. It was it was great getting to know some of those people. Basically, what the guard does is if you don't have the right color armband on there, you don't get in there. <laughs> the, these are the family compounds with children, so they try to keep everybody safe. Sometimes some other singles or whatever would want to get in there, and they uh, we were told to shoot, go away. You know, you can't come in here. Uh, so they would talk through the gate a lot of times. Um, so that I, that was for the first couple of days. Um, that was a great great thing. Were you comfortable with that? Totally. I loved it. I mean, I, I loved it, loved it, loved it. That was my favorite part. That really? was my favorite job that I did there. What, was, uh, was what made it so favorite for you? Because there you had an opportunity to really get to talk to some of the okay. people, whereas some of the other jobs you did not get as uh, much interaction with them. Um, here you've got the children. They just run up and they love you and they want attention and they're smiling and and singing and I'm thinking these kids are smiling and they're happy and look where they are it was it was amazing it was touching and um, and uh, you just really got the chance to talk to some of them the kids spoke better English than the most of their parents did but you could you know make it through some conversations with some of them um, so that was part of it and then also while there we served food three times a day <clears throat> and uh, they would bring the food around it was not much food. It was good food, but it wasn't much. It was probably about the size of a little frozen dinner, and there were no seconds, and so that was that was sad. Uh, you know, we're used to snacking and going back for seconds and all that kind of thing, and, and all they have is what you hand them. Mm. And um, so we served them, and um, that was that was really something um, being able to do that three times a day and. And uh, they were very grateful for what they got. Um, uh, then uh, there was a couple of days where I worked in, in the clothing hut. Uh, there was a small building, I mean, very, very small. We sorted clothes. There were Tupperware bins of clothes, different sizes, men, women, children. Tried to keep the sizes separate, but um, you know they got all jumbled up in the chaos. And um, so we, there was one day we had clothing exchange and we let the people come if they wanted to, if their clothes didn't fit right or if they didn't like it or something. So that was, that got crazy. That really got crazy because um, uh, some of them, you know, they didn't, they didn't want a hunter green coat. They wanted a black coat or they wanted one with a hood, you know. They were <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, that was an experience too, but it was really touching because they come with nothing on those rafts. They have nothing, absolutely nothing with them. And so everything they have, they are, having to hold their hands out and ask for. And these are people that had businesses and families and homes, and here they are in a lines holding their hands out, you know, and then uh, sorting clothes and that kind of thing. So um, th those are mainly the jobs I did mm -hmm. while I was there. Mm -hmm. Angelo, you, you were a team leader for this, this team. Uh, I went with you in, back in March, so this was... I think that was my fourth, this is my fourth, fourth trip. Time. Wow. Yeah, we started a couple of years back when the uh, the floodgates just opened. Yeah. And they were coming, uh, there was actually no agency uh, in Greece when we, we fled the first week. We went out there the first week of the news and that's when the UN showed up. We went to Turkey, spent a week traversing the pattern of where the refugees was coming. We started 
near Ephesus through Smyrna, uh, which is Izmir, and then we came all the way through, crossed the ferry on the boat. We wanted to get the whole full experience. We, we, we had lunch with smugglers. Hmm. We interviewed um, refugees in Turkey. It was a very exciting times. Uh, we went through Istanbul when we arrived. And then uh, the, this fourth trip, I was there with uh, the second team from Dunwoody Baptist, and it was just a, a more affirming and wonderful experience. Yeah, what are some of the things you did in the camp? I try to be a floater. Uh, the teams that go, there's two or three organizations, like the team from Dunwoody Baptist. And people always wonder, but the logistics are incredible. Imagine trying to feed and cover and, and oversee 4,000 people a day. And I've been there when we had 12 to 14 volunteers. Imagine a Sunday pot like a church with the, the work that involves. Imagine that three times a day with 4,000 people. That just gives you context. I have to float and be available because most volunteers are under 30. So there's tensions in the camp. The young people, uh, they go with great spirits and great joy. And by the time they're there two or three weeks, uh, patience runs out. Hmm. <laughs> you know, frustration kicks in. So our job is to minister to the, at least I try to minister to uh, not only the refugees, but the volunteers. So because of those tensions rise up, uh, and I have probably more European experience, I get to appease the challenges, try to intervene, try to intercede and, and work wherever they need me, whether it be food or blankets or folding clothing and so forth. Even uh, un unscribed police guard, if I have to break up a fight or something like that, which this time I didn't have to. Was there a point at which you felt in danger? You talk about breaking up fights. Was there a point at which either one of you felt at risk? Well, for me, that question shouldn't apply. I'm born and raised in the South Bronx. <laughs> so my joke in my family is everywhere I go in the world looks like Disney World compared to where I grew up. So, no, I don't feel those tensions, but I would, won't want to hear Gloria because I asked my wife the same question. I was not afraid at all, really and truthfully. I didn't know what to expect over there um, when I was going. But um, I, w I really wasn't afraid. There was one day when they announced over the intercom, when it was not over the intercom, I believe it was just Jeremy telling us, do not go to the bottom of the hill. There is a scuffle and a standoff with the Greek military or the Greek police. And the same group, I think it was the same group that had burned half the part of the camp down the week before we got there was the one doing this. And so we didn't know what was about to happen. So there was a little anxiety and, uh, I mean, I wasn't really afraid, but it's just, I guess, uncertainty about what's happening. Because I knew that the police were there and the military was there, so I wasn't that afraid of it. But as far as walking around the camp, you know, I'm thinking when we're going over there, who are these people? You hear all this stuff in the news, and oh my gosh, they all want to kill us and everything, and so you don't know. I was not afraid, not one bit. I mean, we were walking all over the camp by ourselves, you know, men all over the place, in line, hanging out together, set up little bitty coffee shops at their mm -hmm. little tent, and it was uh, it was not not scary to me. They'd even all. had a fire a few days before yes. you guys left. Yeah, and I think that was mm -hmm. the same group, wasn't it, Angelo? I think that was the same group that, that, that has had the standoff with the, uh, the police. Mm -hmm. So that was a little, un, you know, just uncertainty, um, a little anxiety maybe, but not really fear 
no. just uh, you know stepping into the unknown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't know what to expect. But I, I felt I felt perfectly safe. Now I would not have walked around there by myself at night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, we had, we only had one night shift, and I was behind the family compound, safe behind the gate. So, uh, but during the day, it was it was fine, totally fine. Yeah. This I want to add that this is the greatest testimony for American Christians o- over here. Because I think at the top of the decision-making process for coming over is fear and security. Now, obviously, I, I could tell people it's safe, but until people like Gloria go, and many, many, many are having the same testimony. My wife went for the first time. She was glowing. She was crying. God gave her love. And what I think we all experience is that the, the Bible is true when that perfect love casts out fear. God, I've discovered, uh, replaces that fear with his love for his people. It is supernatural. And that is, you get to meet those people face to face. There used to be just uh, a foreign concept that these people, and we group everybody as those other people, right? Or our enemies and they hate us. And then you meet people who are hugging you, who are weeping with you, who are thanking you. And as a Christian, obviously Jesus was right, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And as we minister to them, we realize this, fear disappears. Gloria, since this was your first time, what, what ideas did you have before you went that maybe that were changed as a result of going? I mean, my eyes were opened, really, because like I said, I mean, everybody hears what's on the news. You know, all the horror stories and all these are terrorists coming over here trying to kill us. And, and you think that, oh, my gosh, all these Muslims and everything. And we were surrounded by them every day. So you, you don't know. So I, I'm, I was really thinking that we were kind of stepping into a, a, a battlefield <laughs> and um, a controlled battlefield, if you will, kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we were told specifically before we went what we could say and not say and didn't want to offend anybody, didn't want to step on anybody's toes and, and all that kind of thing. So it's like, you know, kind of initially when we got there, it was like, we got to really, really be careful and uh, tiptoe. But once we got there, it was like, that's not, I mean, that wasn't the case at all. It wasn't the case. So, and, and what I, and what Angela was saying, the biggest change that I saw that, that, you know, my eyes were open, that these are real people. These are real families. I mean, I just, I mean, I got to know some of them and I just love them. And to this day, I just, I think about them. Um, and I can get really sad that they're still there. Uh, they, uh, they have their, their, you know, in the family compound, they have their children. I saw one daddy helping his uh, daughter with math one day. Um, I even called out multiplication facts to one of the little kids one day in English, and he was nailed it. He got it. <laughs> um, they wanted their, their, they saw our nails polished. They wanted their children's nails polished. Uh, we looked at their fingernails, and they had some chips polished on from before, and we took polish one day. Missy brought it, thank goodness to her, and they were lined up. They were ecstatic. Mm-hmm. And one dad came over, and he held his little girl out. He didn't say a word, but he just put her over here right by me, and she was probably two years old maybe, and just pointed to her nails for me to polish her nails. So, I mean, these are people, they, they're just like us. You know, they grew up in a war-torn country. Um, they, there's, um, they, uh, like I said before, they have uh, families, businesses. Um, they, it took a lot of courage for them to, to do what they did. Um, but, you know, uh, on the flip side of that, the last couple of days there, I, you know, we saw the little agitation in the camp, and that's the reality of it, uh, frustrated, 
they've been there a while. You've got, I don't know how many countries living there together. Most of them hate each other. And they know they're stuck together right now, so they're trying to be tolerant, but at the same time, there, there's a little uh, feeling there. But, the, but that's the, that was the biggest thing for me, it was that um, I, I actually, you know, had my eyes open to, to who they are. These are not, you know, scary people. With, in every group, even here, we have people that are troublemakers and we have bad, and you're going to have that in any group. Mm-hmm. But um, they, they are, they, my heart really goes out to them to see who they really are. They're just like us, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk, to, talk about a person you met that stands out in your memory or a conversation you may have had with them. Oh, yeah. Wow. Several. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's so many because I'm very intentional, as you know, Jeff, to seek those out. So um, of the many, many, many that I've had a privilege to talk to, um, two stand out, but I think I'm going to focus on the Pakistanis, uh, Sahil. His name is Sahil. And he, he was picking up clothing one day, the clothing tent, and saw me helping other people, and he was an interpreter because he speaks really good English. And the next day, I was walking by, and he was at the bleachers, uh, and he called me up, and we visited for a while, and he asked me if I would uh, teach the Bible to their team. They had 12 Christians from Pakistani in a population of 800 Pakistanis in our camp. Twelve of them met every day twice a day to study the Bible and pray. He says, but our American pastor's leaving and he won't make the 11 o'clock teaching today. And I look at him and say, how would you even know that I'm qualified to teach the Bible? And he says, um, he says, I saw your spirit in the clothing tent yesterday morning. I said, and I don't know how to explain it, but I knew you were a man of God. That was very humbling for me. So we went to the tent I taught there that session. These men were so hungry. It's like in the times of the Bible where Paul would visit a city and the people say, stay with us, stay with us, and he would stay there. They asked me to come back. And the next day, I asked him if I could bring Gloria and Missy because I knew they had that flexibility that day. And they allowed me because there's only 12 men or 15 men, I can't remember. Uh, but Gloria was there, my wife was there, and I really needed witnesses because I experienced amazing spiritual uh, things working with foreigners. But they're only testimonies of naughty witnesses. But uh, Gloria was there, and we did a, a teaching and a preaching on, on Jesus walking on the water. The emphasis was not so much the story that we all know, but to say that these people you know, were sent by the sovereignty of God into a great calamity in the sea, and it was, they were battling the waves and the winds, but in the middle of the mess, Jesus shows up walking on the water. And I say, what did they see? And they answer, they saw Jesus. I said, no, they've been with Jesus for years now, for two, maybe two years. But for the first time, the scripture says in Matthew, he says, for now we know that you are the Son of God. And they were able to see the glory of God and I likewise said, you might see this camp as a terrible thing, as a storm, but consider that in the sovereignty of God, he has put you here with 800 Pakistanis and 3,000 plus foreigners who do not know Jesus. They were, you were there. The, the thought that their paradigm changed from here I'm a victim to I am a servant of Christ and wherever I am, 
I can be an instrument of reconciliation for God. It was so beautiful to see them smile and come alive in their eyes. It was just amazing. So out of all the wonderful stories, I, I picked that one. I want to bounce off of him if I can. That was an amazing experience in several different ways. <clears throat> one is there was a small group of Christians surrounded by Muslims. You know, Of course, a lot of them said, we're not really religious Muslims, we're just cultural Muslims, you know, we don't really believe a lot of that. But, you know, there was this small group of Christians surrounded by these others in their little tent. They met in a, a little tiny tent with blankets on the side, blankets on the floor. We sat in there. It was hot. It was dark, but <laughs> Angelo was amazing. Um, he gave the scripture. One of the guys read it in um, Pakistani, Order. whatever it's called, whatever their Order. language is. Okay. <laughs> and um, there was a translator there. And what was the coolest thing was that when the translator really got it, mm -hmm. and he would have a true aha moment. Yes. And he would be like, oh, like, ah, oh, I get it. You know, and then he would translate it, and you would see smiles and nods, and it's like, you know, something really registered with them. Um, that that was, you know, uh, it was amazing. And and the fact that they allowed women in there, which shows they were Christian. They were not, because, you know, Muslims don't allow women in the same group, but they allowed Missy and I to go in there. Um, but that was incredible. I honestly felt like, that I was, you know, with Jesus and the disciples meeting in a secret room somewhere. Um, it was it was really cool. Angelo did an amazing job, and they were very responsive, and it mm -hmm. touched me. And it was it was a blessed. Well, thing those to be are the parts that I think uh, where missions are so beautiful and so rewarding is that we get to see the Bible come alive. You know, we get to see we get out of the buildings, we get with people, we see that the Bible and the Word is living and active, and it, it does change people. It gives people hope, it gives people um, love, it removes fear from us, and I just want more people to experience those things, a glory experience, because I get them all the time, and uh, <laughs> I'm a fruit loop, I'm like Paul, I've, I've been counted a fool now for Christ. Mm -hmm. Can I share a couple of people that we sure. met? We have time for that. Absolutely. Um, so a couple of people that stood out to me, and there's several. Um, but um, like I was saying before, you know, we serve them food three times a day, no seconds. You know, I don't know how often they get fruit. Not that often, maybe one a day. I don't even know if it's that much. I don't know. But anyway, um, one day this man was peeling his apple. It may have been the only one he had. Who knows? And he peeled it and he sliced it and he walked over and handed me a piece. And to me, that was like the widow's mite, you know, because these people have nothing. And here they don't, they don't have seconds. They don't have snacks. They don't have a kitchen they can go to. And here he was giving me mm. part of his apple and uh, a couple of others. And it was just, it was very touching. And then one little girl there uh, ran up and Medina was her name, Afghanistan little girl. Uh, somebody had given her a hat with little pins and things on it, and she took one, this little, actually I have it around my neck right now, put it on a cord to keep me grounded. She took this little purple plastic flower off of her hat and put it on my lanyard. And that touched me too, because again, this was her little special hat and they had nothing. And so, and then the one guy brought us tea one day. Uh, he just he just came up and just handed me a cup of tea that night when I was there. And so there were so there was so many people like that that had huge hearts in the midst of them having nothing. They were still giving, which was amazing to me. Mm. That is incredible when you get to experience that. Um, 
And these are folks, t- tell us where they're coming from. Who, who are the people you interacted with? What countries? Did you- there are 35 countries represented at the Lesbos camp alone. Uh, so the Eritreans were the Africans who were killing the fire. And, but what happens is you have to understand that not everybody's a refugee of war. Not everybody's fleeing persecution. Uh, I work in Latin America too, and, and what happens is people take advantage of the ignorant and they say, hey, the, the borders are open for you to go over there. So people pick up their possessions from Bangladesh, India, Africa, Dominican Republic. Dominican so people Republic. from the Dominican Republic, I said, wow. what are you doing? Well, they're trafficking them. They can't get into the States or Europe, so they'll go through Africa or the Middle East to get illegally into the camps so they can go to Europe. I mean, it's unbelievable, but you have every Middle Eastern country uh, that we know represented. We have dozens of African nations represented. Uh, we even had a British guy. Did you hear about that? <laughs> he was trafficking that. drugs. <laughs> in Turkey, hmm. and he was able to, and he was going to be, you know, I guess have a hearing or put in jail, so he fled to the camp, <laughs> and he crossed over with the refugees, and he's in Lesbos camp as a Brit. Wow. Obviously, then he got, um, you know, sent back home because obviously he's a European. Unbelievable, but you see all <laughs> kinds of people. It's amazing to think that so many nations could be coexisting in, in about 30 acres of land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a, just to get a picture of it, describe the camp, just if you could. Just Yeah, um, the, the island um, is amazing, you know. Paul was there, mm-hmm. Apostle Paul was there. It's uh, only 30-something miles of, in the Aegean Sea from uh, Turkey, so a boat ride from where they were coming from, the, from that coast could last uh, 50 minutes maybe in one of those rafts. Uh, the island is basically predominant, uh, a very arid, hilly island. I don't know the mileage, but you can cover the whole thing in an hour with a car. It's not, you've, you've been there. And full of olive trees, beautiful thing. You just kind of see those olive things. It reminds you of, of the times of Jesus. And, and the camp was set aside about 10 minutes from the main port where the cruise lines come, which, by the way, the island has lost 70% of its revenue because the island survives strictly on tourism. So the refugee crisis has really killed the economy. The people are not so resentful on a personal basis, but again, consider if it was us, and 70% of your income was lost. It wouldn't matter what the reason is, you'd be upset too. So the, the part, the, it used to be an old military compound up on a hill that oversees the, I mean, it's, you stop seeing the beauty of Greece and a Greek island while you're working there, but we have ocean views almost from wherever we look. And uh, on about 10 acres of rocky, hilly soil, we uh, were serving these people. One day, Patrick, we were all tired at the end of the day, and I just wondered, I wonder how much we walked today. He pulled out his phone. This is a normal work day, just tra- traversing, and his phone said we walked seven miles a day. Wow. Up and down those hills, which really is like a mountain, <laughs> rocky. Yeah. And 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 you know, like you said, it's a former military a compound. So and I wanted to take pictures so bad, but we were strictly told not to. But um, but there there it's fenced in. You know, probably what thirty or forty foot tall. I don't know how the cyclone fences with, wire, with barbed wire on barbed the top wire. and police and military mm-hmm. guards all over. <clears throat> 
which mm -hmm. is intimidating when you first see it, and then you realize, hey, these guys are on my side, so I don't need to worry. Yeah. yeah. And the refugees now are not allowed to really leave the camp. When we were there in March, they could come and go. Um, there's a little flexibility because they've realized, uh, it, you know, there's nowhere to go. It's an island. Right. There's just nowhere to go. So they've kind of figured out if they'll allow them a curfew where they can go out, maybe even go to the beach or go buy a sandwich or go to Mentalini and walk. Uh, obviously, this was new, this trip. They've, they've discovered it's, it's worked out better to let them have a little freedom than to try to trap them in there 24-7. Yeah. I think they said they had to be there at least 25 days before they get a pass to be able to go into town. And one of the people I was talking to said that when they go into town, the store owners are not that friendly to them. Hmm. Uh, and I talked to a Greek resident there who was also volunteering with Samaritan's Purse. And she said, you know, the Greek people are passionate about their situation and they want to welcome them. But like with any group, you have some that are trouble, you know, and they'll, they'll break into things and do things. And so they just say, shoo, go away. And, but, um, but it was it was peaceful though for the most. Are, are they staying there? Are they being sent back? What, how long do they expect to stay in the camp? You know. Whoa, that's the political mm -hmm. question yeah. of the century. Uh, you know, it's a very difficult question to answer because Europe's borders are closed, so you really can't tell anybody any particular time frame because you could start a riot. And understanding that not everyone who's in the camp is going to be vetted into Europe. So it's very low key, un, everything's under wraps. The, the people who know about this think it could be years before those people change. I mean, we, the Europe's borders are closed. There's no way to go. Turkey doesn't want them, Europe doesn't want them, and Lesbos Island and Athens, Greece is stuck. So I don't hear anybody promoting anything other than trying to keep things uh, uh, with a kind of a little bit of hope mm -hmm. so nobody blows up. But uh, the tensions are high. Some people have been there six months. Mm. I think there is hope. I, I heard a little girl singing. She may not have even known what it meant, but she was singing, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And she was smiling. Mm. Um, but like he said, I mean, they can't go home and they can't go forward. They're just hoping that they get to go forward, and there's just tents everywhere, tents, 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 tents. And um, you know, we while we were there, there were a couple of more boats that came in, and uh, it was that was something just seeing them come in like that, just wet, and they finally made it, but uh, it was powerful. Now it was warm when you guys were there, but they're heading into winter, and we were there in March, and in March, and it was br brutal. I've been there in November, and it's brutal. So, I mean, the island just, it takes that, I mean, you got to look yeah. at the map, and I don't know how those winds work. Oh, yeah. Man, the wind factor brings it down probably to the 30s. You would never think that yeah. about Greek islands, but 30 degrees. And if you see that these people have no cushion between the tent and the ground, and they sleep with one blanket that the UN supplies. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done that. I just had to live the experience and live like them. And I came back. I've never, thank God, for pillows or mattresses mm -hmm. or hot water, but I have for the last couple of years working there. I'm so thankful for the amenities we have. Yeah. So tell us about the people themselves. You know, what was their li Did they talk about their life back in their country and what were some of the things they talked about? What did they do for a living? Those kind of things. I met some really interesting people. I met uh, a barber. 
Um, he said that he was a very successful barbershop mm-hmm. in his city where all the celebrities came to. <laughs> <laughs> but he said that he was threatened uh, to be killed uh, a couple times. And he, um, his, um, his dad had been in the um, Greek military, had been killed um, somewhere in that. And his mom and sister had been killed in a bombing at a hospital. And so he's pretty much on his own. Um, and uh, very, very nice. And I said, well, you know what? People need their hair cut. Set up shop. Let's get busy here. Let's do it. Um, and then uh, I met uh, a mechanic, mm-hmm. uh, met a poet. I saw this one guy. He had his notebook, and he was just writing, writing. And everywhere he was just carrying it, writing, writing. And I finally said, what are you working on there? And he said, poetry, you know. So. And he had published songs. Hmm? That guy had songs that he had did, been really? published. Yeah. I, I didn't know. Wow, that was that was amazing. But yeah, I mean, they they uh, they just had to leave. They had to leave everything. And and one night um, there was a lot of um, agitation. I heard some come up to the to the family compound through the gate, and they were talking to some inside. And they were just you you could tell their voices were raised, and they were agitated. So finally, when they stopped, I was like, "What's going on here?" And and he said, "Well, the Afghan president is demanding that we all be returned." To the country, mm-hmm. and he said, we're, "We're they were really worried about it, and they were saying we don't want to go. You know, that's all. That's why we left." They said, "If we go back, we'll either be forced to join the Taliban or ISIS, or we will be killed." And that's why we left. And he said, "I don't want to kill people." Mm-hmm. You know, so that's the, you know that's that's the group there too. These are people that are are trying to make better of themselves. I mean, some of them probably are on the run for for whatever reason, but you've got for the most part people that are just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. The biggest amount of people are under 30. The largest number of people are young. You know that, Jeff. And I met so many college students, you know, so many college students. Uh, I've met college professors, dentists, doctors, uh, construction workers, carpenters. Uh, th- there's all kind of professionals that, you know, you just think these guys are just, uh, you know, we're used to immigration in America from peasant nations, but we forget that some of these people are not the poor of their country. These people who affluence because it takes tens of thousands of dollars to get from the Middle East to Europe. Mm. So, so you find a lot of interesting people, amazing. Uh, many of them, obviously, under 30. You asked a question, I think, uh, about why so many men? Why the men and single men? Well, the history of, of migration, at least uh, in modern times, shows us that the men have to get established, go cross. I was there uh, for the first time, so all we got was single men. And I asked this question, well, they have to go, they have to get settled, they have to find a place to live, they got to find a means to, to get income. Because at first, when they were coming, the borders were still open. And then they sent for their families, and, I, and the news was covering all this, and we know that some of these people were unable to uh, reclaim their families for over a year. So how much more or less now that some of these single men have left their families? Uh, now we found an interesting phenomenon in this trip I've never seen before, is refugees are getting married in the camp <laughs> under their own authorities, under their own religious belief system, uh, almost like uh, using it as a tool for yeah, if they were from different nations, like if you're Syrian and you're under persecution, but you can marry somebody from Iran or from somewhere else, with the thought that she's my wife or husband, so they'll definitely allow them. Well, that broke out the day we were leaving. 
because they were evacuating some of the sections. I don't know if you know that. But they were interviewing people, and uh, they were coming to some of these makeshift marriages, oh, and they right. were starting to to divide them up. The, the Greek government is not seeing that as an official <laughs> marriage, and they're just going to take you as an individual, whatever your status was when you entered at first. And those tensions were high. We were leaving that night, <laughs> and they tend to do all the evacuations in the evening where obviously they don't make media announcements about this, but they are uh, deporting people slowly without much. I hope I don't get in trouble saying this. <laughs> <laughs> but they are deporting people. Uh, the gov the gov Greek government is deporting people. And they have the right. This is not something that's illegal or illicit. It's just they have the right to do with their sovereign nation whatever they wish. And they are slowly but surely trying to to send people to wherever they need to send them. I think another another thing that the reason there's more men is because it's hard to travel with families, with children. I mean, you've got a lot of people to keep up with. And like they told us before, those rafts, they overload them. They're sitting below the water level, and so water kind of comes in. Sometimes people fall out, and um, there is a section there for unaccompanied minors who lost their family in the journey somewhere, and they mm -hmm. have nobody. And we were told that unless they find some family somewhere, they will be there till they're 18 years old. And, uh, and it's a terrible thing. And one little girl drew a picture of a body in the water with X's over their eyes and said it was her mama. So she had lost her mom. So I think that's another reason why there's more men, too, just because of the you know, wow. having to move children across and stuff. Wow. I, can't, I just can't imagine um, trying to bring your family over, your kids over. Uh, I know I, when I was there in March, I tried to imagine you know, what it would be like to try to make that journey or be it just be in the camp you make it and there's a sense of relief they have when they finally make it but then you got to live in this camp and um, with 4,000 other people you know um, and no running water the bathroom I mean you basically get <clears throat> no electricity no, really no like I mean, you get your you get the community bathroom the right. community just shower bad. yeah but you can't I mean you got to get a bottle of water if you want to boil some tea you got I mean you got to yeah it's uh it makes us that's why when I think of the compassion of Jesus, you know, we, you know, we will never know the suffering of another mm -hmm. until we take up, you know, their cross, like Jesus took up on our sin. I mean, we need to, we, we, part of, uh, we, we need to, as Christians, uh, raise our awareness above Americans that we're Christians first, Americans second. And that uh, once I don't know a single human being who is a Christian who has not been put the spirit of God of empathy to feel somebody else's need. And Christ took upon our sufferings on his body on the cross. And the little we do to serve them is just a minute picture of the of the compassion God had on us when we were still lost. Mm. So um, why, did, why did you go? What, what made you want to go? Uh, well, I went because I grew up, like I said before, I grew up in a Christian home and very involved in church. And we had a great uh, missions um, team at our church. We're very involved in going out, just not overseas, but, you know, around the country to various things, holding inner city vacation Bible schools and stuff like that. And so I missed it and I wanted to be involved in it again. And 
all my adult years, I've never had a church that was involved in it. We moved here from Dallas, Texas two years ago, and they were mega, mega churches. And they were good churches, but they were not missions-oriented church like this church is. And so uh, we had the opportunity to get the time off from work. Um, my son and me, Patrick, um, um, went with us, and it was such a blessing that, uh, you know, mom and son got to go on a mission trip together, uh, first mission trip together, and my first one in eons. Um, and so I really wanted to go uh, to because I wanted to really understand who these people are and hopefully to have an opportunity to share Christ with them because we know that their beliefs are way off base of, from ours. Uh, and I wanted to understand their plight so I could um, be more, more loving and, and towards them and show them love the best we can. As I see, we're not, Christians are not bad. We're not bad people. We're not all infidels <laughs> or whatever. Um, and uh, and that's, that's why I went. And it really it was a blessing because I did, I, um, like I said before, my eyes were, were open to, to, um, to that, to who they are, their understanding where they're coming from, and saw God working also there while we were there through people. Hmm. Wonderful. And you keep going back, Angelo. Yeah, um, you know, as a preacher, uh, my passion is to preach the gospel of grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I have been so blessed to do it among the urban poor. Uh, our ministry probably has preached to thousands and thousands of uh, Latino immigrants in, in America. Obviously, it's 30 million or more people in this country with a growing fastest population as Hispanics. But I always had a a desire to to finish the race that Paul said. And uh, I mean, maybe I'm weird and maybe this is wrong, but I had asked God to, before my last day, that I have a chance to pray, to preach to all the nations. I have been praying that prayer for over two years, and then this opportunity came. Is So I preached to North Americans, South Americans, Central Americans, Europeans, and now Asians. So I'm a little bit short, maybe Australia uh, <laughs> and, and Indonesian areas. But I, I desire to spread the good news of Christ. And I'm here to tell anyone who doesn't believe that I am a living witness of the grace of God, that whatever our mindset is, our preconception, our prejudice, God will blow it away because people will run to you to the light and ask you, why are you doing this? If you have a minute, I'm going to tell you about um, Sheikh. Sheikh is a translator who was working for us, and he's very articulate in English, and he's from Iran. So uh, one day, we have a guy out of control at the clothing tent, and I'm trying to help a teenage girl or young girl who's having a struggle. You know, they struggle with the gender thing, so they have very little respect for, for women. So when our females are helping them, they tend to get a little bit upset. So I finally closed the deal and I said, no more pants, that you take them or leave them. So the guy in English says, you have no heart. And I smiled because I could see his, uh, you know, his frustration. And uh, so I smiled and I said, I have no heart. I said, let me tell you something. I spent $3,000 of my own money to come and bring my wife. And I work here 12 hours a day trying to serve you 
and I have no heart. He smiled, bowed his head, and he says, I'm sorry. I, I, I know you guys love us. The next morning, I was walking uh, down the road in, uh, uh, where the bleachers are, you know, that central area. And Shake, the translator, says, can I talk to you? And I says, yeah, what's up? He says, I was there when you said you spent all that money to come over here. He says, that's a lot of money. I don't give you American or Middle Eastern. That is a lot of money for your family, your children, your expenses. He says, why would you do that? What, what would you come to serve us? He says, I'm a Muslim. He says, we would never do that. And I say, well, I serve a God of love who gave everything for me. And all I can do is give the little I have to serve someone else. He then asked me more about the gospel. And I was able to say, you know, do you have family? He told me that he'd been held for four months uh, by ISIS. They tortured him and they threatened to kill him if he didn't reveal his family's um, location because the warped in the, the Sunni and the Sunni and the Shia, I don't, Shia I don't know all the terms. But, um, but as he asked me, I was able to say, consider that you love your family and you would die for them. I says, how much more that a loving God would die for us? I know that the Islam would teach you that, that God cannot be a man. But if he is God, wouldn't that mean he is? Nothing would be impossible for him? Well, our, our faith tells us he loved us so much that knowing that no, righteous, no, no unrighteous man could ever attain the righteousness of God. You say in Islam that you're going to weigh them, but I'm telling you, Sheikh, don't you ever sin in the heart and the mind? And he's nodding yes. Through this process, his whole head is bowed and humble. You, the posture of the man, to me, is speaking. God is moving. Give him the good news. So Jesus comes and takes our unrighteousness and trades it for his righteousness that one day when we, got, we, go, we die, we can go home and see God. And that boy, that boy was glowing when I was done. And those are the things that keep me going back, Jeff. Knowing that for one lost sheep, the shepherd would have left the 99. I love how you described it. When you, when you do these sort of things, you do get to see the Bible come alive. You know, yeah, but that requires us uh, stepping into some areas that are not always comfortable for us or that are stretch. We got to step out in faith. Um, we've been blessed with this kind of access. As the missions pastor, I'm sitting here thinking about you know, how long do we engage? We send more teams, and, and I just think about the amazing access we've been given uh, through conscience, through Jeremy, through God, really setting up some early Amen. appointments when you guys were wandering around looking at, about how to help, and <laughs> God orchestrated this whole thing and. Uh, we see his hand, at least. We trust that it's been God. So tell us a little bit about how Jeremy and Mariana are doing, what they're doing in the camp. Um, I know even Mariana's found a ministry and, and found some ministry opportunities. So, mm -hmm. uh, well, Jeremy that. is a brilliant coordinator, and he thrives on the crisis. And you have to consider the logistics of overseeing the 4,000 people. I mean, that requires concentration and time and effort. And he is very faithful. He works long hours. He's tired. Uh, he needs prayer. You know, he needs prayer from his church, from his friends, from his family. And uh, he needs support. Uh, he is a humble man. If you knew what he earned, you'd probably cry because uh, he does this for the love of God because certainly he doesn't make a living. You learn more at McDonald's probably than he earns serving God. And so, you know, considering that he oversees 50 to 60 volunteers at a time, that requires the logistics of coordinating and scheduling and overseeing. 
And not only that, but he has to also communicate with the government authorities and the other ministries. So he has played, and if they call him in the middle of the night, like the fire, he had to, he finished his shift, and then he has to run over there and spend all night, 18 hours or whatever, trying to arrange things and get the people involved to clean up. And uh, please pray for Jeremy and for Marianne. God will sustain them because like Paul says in the scriptures, you know, who's sufficient for these things? Not in our power, but the power that God supplies. Um, anything to add to that, Gloria? Did you learn anything more about what they're doing? Um, I, I know that they have their hands full and they have their two boys there. Mm-hmm. And um, so, like you said, I think, you know, Jeremy has spent most of his time at the camp because he's uh, coordinating and putting out fires, literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, and Mariana's trying to help him in the way she can and also take care of the boys, and she's homeschooling. And But I think that she is um, trying to uh, work more. I think she's trying to coordinate a lot of the volunteers' um, efforts, mm-hmm. too, and try to be more involved in that way and um you know just being there in a foreign country and all that entails and um, we had to take some supplies to them personal supplies to them because they didn't have what they needed there or they were really expensive there or something Mm -hmm. and so um you know it's it's a sacrifice being there but they seem to love it and, and love what they're doing so so uh, we do pray for them. We love we love the Hollemans, and and I'm optimistic we'll send uh, another team for as you know we'll keep sending teams for as long as we have access uh, in the camp. So if someone's listening to this and and you know they hear us talk, you know put out the next trip dates and uh, who wants to go, what would you advise them or how would you counsel them if they're thinking about going? What would you tell them to? Uh, what would you? I would, would you say. say you know, if you can sign up <laughs> and go, um, it, it is physical labor. So you do need to be prepared to do a lot of walking. Um, in our case, it was in the heat. The first couple of days was cool, but then it got really hot. A um, lot of uphill, downhill walking, um, carrying boxes, some, some physical things to it. But if you really want to see you know, God in action and feel what it feels like to be a missionary, I mean, we have missions here. We're supposed our life is supposed to be a mission every day from with everybody we're around. But we don't really think of it like that. A lot of times, we think we have to go far to do it. Um, but when you get to ground zero of a crisis, which is where we were, um, and you can really see um, the Bible when it's you know I was hungry and you fed me and I was naked and you clothed me and you literally are doing this for these people they're like I said before they're holding their hands out and they're really and you're doing that it's very humbling um, we come back here and we've got it all cushy and posh and comfortable and and you know I just keep going back to them thinking wow but it really is a blessing um, to see that even even though they're in a crisis they do have i mean it's got to be god-given hope that is still instilled in them and then uh, they um you know they they just um they, he's he's working through them he's working through people like angelo 
you know, I want that glow Angelo's got. He's got this glow going <laughs> that people can see, this aura. <laughs> um, but, I, I mean, it's, it's the most amazing opportunity, really, is to be able to share. And even if you can't really talk to them, you don't speak their language, because most of them didn't speak English very well. Yeah. But you could still communicate. Even if you don't, just being there. Yeah. And being able to share and participate and give them a smile and give them a hug, that meant everything. Hmm. What's been the uh, response when you've come back? Well, uh, you know, um, you and I, for lack of better words, we're professionals at this. This is what God has appointed us to do, and we do it with love. But you, you, have, you have all kinds. You have the ones who are thankful that they can't go, but they're willing to support you to go. And it's okay. You know, I think God made it very clear all different parts of the body. And and Paul was a goer, but he couldn't go if, you know, they didn't help him either. So I get both sides. But I'll tell you, like Gloria, Gloria is just another witness of what I pr- promised people. I said, if if you go on a mission trip, your life will change forever. This isn't just a temporary thing. Your life and your ministry will change forever. You will see Jesus in a whole different light because God is love and he gave his only begotten son and if he gave it all for us can we just give the little that we have to promote his good name what about you Gloria what would have been some of the responses from um they were glad I made it back safely (laughs) (laughs) and um uh one person um actually just got back from Greece um just before we left and they were like why would you spend your money to go there for that you know they went on vacation it's like i can't even understand why you would do that you know but um you know it was uh it was just it was something we just felt really led to do and it was worth it whatever it took and i would you know gladly do it again mm-hmm. I appreciate you all going. I appreciate um, the other six that went and uh, their stories. I know they were all uh, impacted and had wonderful encounters with with individuals and with people. And uh, any final word about just you know where God is in all this and where you got the sense that He's working? You've shared some wonderful stories already. You know, I would just say that that um, it's like Angela was telling them the Pakistani group that uh, he was talking to, that God is with them in the storm. Mm. And um, God loves every one of them just as much as he loves us. And he knows where they are and he knows their needs. Um, I think that we really need to pray for teachers, Christian teachers like Angelo, because there is a, a group there that's teaching some wrong things to them, like God spanking them because they're in that situation, which is totally not what they need to hear and wrong. Mm. But I just, like I said, I just, I just think that um, that we need to to pray for those people because, like I said, I mean, God knows and He's with them. But you know, maybe in in their loneliness, their isolation, and where they are right now, that that they will they will seek they they will seek Him. You know, that uh, they will see Him and in, in others, in us volunteers and, and teachers, and um, bring them out of it and help them not lose hope. Mm-hmm. And help them lead, lead them to a better life. Mm-hmm. I would share something that um, blessed me a long, long time ago when I heard a great man of God uh, teach 
on Jesus' teaching to love your enemies. He says, because God kept his own commandment and he loved his enemies when he loved you. And that really Mm. renews your mind to say, you're right, I was an enemy of God and he died for me. And now he's asking me, go love your enemy. And for the camp to be at Mytilene, which is in, is it Acts 17? 20? Acts 20. 20. Acts 20, I think, yeah. Um, for us to be in a, in a setting where uh, Paul actually was, was also very moving because the landscape probably hasn't changed a whole lot. It's mountainous, <laughs> the sea is there, you know, and you could jump. Yeah. It was like stepping back in time in a lot of ways, too, which was really amazing and then we finish our trip going to mars hill uh, yeah and the parthenon so it's uh it's yeah. like the, the cherry on top at the end of this yeah. yeah let me let me just say you guys are not living in the camp so you know <laughs> when you once you get out it's it's beautiful it's uh Absolutely. it's an amazing environment and then you stay in it a comfortable is. hotel then the last day you take in you, you catch your breath Get ready to come back and uh, kind of have a culture day in, in Athens. So. There's more suffering in the cubicles of this city. <laughs> yeah, yes. it was. Yeah, it was not. It was not bad gig at all. Once we uh, once no, we left camp, no, we, we had a good complain. time. Angela and Missy yeah. are so much fun, and we had a. They really know how to. And the Greek culture is amazing. The food, the music. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Eat healthy. I felt I felt better after that week there. I think you know. <laughs> so um, well, thank you for sharing your stories and and. Um, Thank you for uh, just bringing it around to the gospel because a lot of people have compassion in these situations, but I think it's all meant to to point us back to God and, and make us cry out to Him and uh, realize that we're all we're all refugees of some sort searching for a home and uh, that God has provided that home and He's calling us back to Him. That'll do it for this episode of the Mission Life Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about what Dunwoody Baptist is doing in missions, visit dbc.org missions. If you found this conversation helpful, would you share it with someone you know? Maybe post it on your Facebook page or send the link jeffreams.com 14 to a friend who might be praying about how God could use them, whether here or in another country. You can also find a summary of this conversation on my website at jeffreams.com. Check back soon as we post another conversation with someone putting their faith into action and living life on mission. 